0: Loving Liberty Network proudly presents Heroes and Heroines, a weekly broadcast by Lawrence W. Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry Reed has written nearly 2,000 articles and columns and is the author of eight books. Most recently, the thought-provoking was Jesus a Socialist. Loving Liberty welcomes you to Heroes and Heroines by Lawrence W. Reed. When Chester Allen Arthur took the oath of office as America's 21st president, and swore to uphold the Constitution, the country's expectations of him were low. It was September 20, 1881, 140 years ago. He exceeded those expectations, and in the case of one of his 12 vetoes, he offered wisdom that puts many of today's politicians to shame. Outside of New York, Chester Arthur was largely unknown in 1880. After a stint Practicing law in New York City in the 1850s and 60s, he became an ally and political beneficiary of Roscoe Conkling, a rather corrupt GOP bigwig who built a sizable patronage machine by putting his friends in civil service positions. Arthur was fired once from his post in the New York Customs House by a U.S. president, Rutherford B. Hayes. When Arthur was shoved onto the successful 1880 Republican ticket as the vice presidential candidate with presidential nominee James Garfield, much of the country yawned and asked, Chester who? President Garfield was shot by a disgruntled office seeker in July, only four months into his term. He died 11 weeks later in September of 1881, catapulting Arthur into the White House as an accidental president. He served out Garfield's term and in poor health opted not to mount a vigorous campaign to win a term of his own in 1884. If Arthur had run and won in 1884, he likely would have died in office. As it was, he passed away from Bright's disease in 1886 at the age of 57. Historians these days exhibit a bias for activist presidents, They write a great deal, and admiringly, about the ones who expanded the government, engaged in foreign adventures, and tortured the Constitution until it confessed to powers never intended for the federal government. For the most part, Arthur didn't travel those dead-end paths, so he gets rated as unmemorable or mediocre. But he did accomplish some good things that few ever expected of him, such as civil service reform that eroded the corrupt spoils system. While reading through Arthur's messages to Congress recently, I discovered his 12 vetoes, and I found that they contained some excellent observations. Considering the gigantic infrastructure bills that have been discussed in Congress recently, we ought to think about what President Arthur wrote when he killed the Rivers and Harbors Act on August 1, 1882. The bill would have appropriated $19 million. That's it. 19 million, with an M, but that was huge in its day. And it would have appropriated that sum, quote, for the construction, repair, and preservation of certain works on rivers and harbors, and for other purposes, end quote. Arthur noted that while some of the projects in the bill were clearly for the general welfare, the rest was what he would today call shameless pork barrel spending. In his words, quote, My principal objection to the bill is that it contains appropriations for purposes not for the common defense or general welfare, and which do not promote commerce among the states. These provisions, on the contrary, are entirely for the benefit of the particular localities in which it is proposed to make the improvements. I regard such appropriation of the public money as beyond the powers given by the Constitution to Congress and the President. I feel the more bound to withhold my signature from the bill because of the peculiar evils which manifestly result from this infraction of the Constitution. Appropriations of this nature, to be devoted purely to local objects, tend to an increase in number and in amount. And as the the citizens of one state find that money to raise which they in common with the whole country are taxed is to be expended for local improvements in another state, They then demand similar benefits for themselves, and it is not unnatural that they should seek to indemnify themselves for such use of the public funds by securing appropriations for similar improvements in their own neighborhood. Thus, as the bill becomes more objectionable, it secures more support. This result is invariable and necessarily follows a neglect to observe the constitutional limitations upon the lawmaking power. End quote. President Arthur was calling attention to the bandwagon effect of government spending. The more the politicians toss other people's money around, the more the people want in on it. And even those who weren't looking for any in the first place want to get their fair share. Other terms for what's going on here are demagoguery, vote buying, and let's be brutally honest, downright moral and financial corruption. When it grows to a colossal scale, it's a sign that a nation is flushing itself down the black hole of fiscal recklessness. It never ends well. Bear in mind that the main federal fiscal problem in Arthur's day was a chronic budget surplus, utterly remote from the mammoth, unconscionable, and indefensible deficits of our time. The bill President Arthur vetoed would have reduced the budget surplus by $19 million. The infrastructure blowout proposed in Washington right now would increase the budget deficit and the national debt by trillions. Another reason for Arthur's veto was his belief that the bill would appropriate a sum that, quote, greatly exceeded in amount the needs of the country for the present fiscal year, end quote. He argued that the Rivers and Harbors Act of 1882 would require the government to expend so large an amount of money within so brief a period that the expenditure cannot be made economically and advantageously. Does anyone in his right mind believe that Joe Biden or any official or assembly of officials could economically and advantageously spend trillions more next year than they spent this year? Don't fool yourself. Or more to the point, don't let the spenders fool you. In the unlikely event that the big spenders in Washington might hear this message, My guess is that they will simply scoff at it. They would regard it as demeaning to their vaunted intellect to suggest that a long-dead Chester Arthur could teach them anything. This is variously called hubris, ignorance, smugness, bigotry, conceit, and self-importance. It is the same pomposity with which the arrogant, swaggering demagogues of ancient Rome demolished first the Roman Republic and then later the Roman Empire, too. Sadly, the day after Arthur's veto, the Congress overrode it, and the Rivers and Harbors Act became law. The big spenders went home and told their constituents they had just secured some freebies, and not to forget it come election time. We may think of Chester Arthur as a nobody, but I wish we could put him in a room today with Joe Biden to talk infrastructure spending. My bet is that in two minutes... Chester would have Joe tied up in knots of his own making. For Heroes and Heroines, this is Lawrence Reed. Join us again next week for Heroes and Heroines by Lawrence W. Reed. Broadcasts are archived at lawrencewreed.com and lovingliberty.net, home of a growing network of Allies for Liberty.